Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Hello, I'm Lisa Heineman, co-host of New Books in Gender and Sexuality Studies, part of the New Books Network. Welcome to our show. In 1947, with the end of British Empire in South Asia, the subcontinent was partitioned. The majority Hindu regions became India, and the majority Muslim regions became Pakistan. The latter consisted of two pieces, West Pakistan to India's Northwest, and East Pakistan to India's Northeast. In 1971, Warfare between East Pakistan, West Pakistan, and India led to the creation of the independent state of Bangladesh from what had been East Pakistan. At least that's one way of describing events, by identifying the national actors, India, Pakistan, Bangladesh. But in her new book, Women, War, and the Making of Bangladesh, Remembering 1971, historian Yasmin Saikia tells a different story, a story of human beings, male and female, violent and violated in an environment of mass rape. As Sekia explains, most women don't recall the war as a nationalist struggle. Rather, they recall it as an utter mayhem involving a whirlwind of parties as their bodies and souls were ravaged by men of formal armies, informal militias, and their own communities. Thirty years later, women and men alike still seek to reclaim their humanity and to recognize the humanity in those once labeled as others. Women, War, and the Making of Bangladesh is the first book to be published simultaneously in India, Pakistan, and Bangladesh, which is a remarkable testament to Sakia's ability to let multiple voices be heard, to tell the story of people rather than nations. Indeed, Sakia describes her interview partners as co-authors, and the long passages of testimony are both moving and devastating. Yasmin Sakia has written a wonderfully humane book, and I hope you'll read it. Hello, Yasmin. Have I got you on the line? Yes. Hello. Thank you. Hi, Yasmin. It's great to hear your voice. Okay. Well, let me welcome everybody today. I've got on the line here Yasmin Sakia. She is the heart Nikakos Chair in Peace Studies and also a professor of history at Arizona State University and author of a wonderful new book called Women, War, and the Making of Bangladesh, Remembering 1971. It's brand new with Duke University Press. I've read it. I can recommend it highly. A very moving book in many ways about violence um, and also healing from violence. Yasmin, welcome to our show. And I wonder if you can just... uh, Greet our listeners by saying a little bit about yourself. Good morning, Lisa. Thanks for asking me to speak with you and your audience about my work, myself, and everything else. Um, About myself, I'm originally from a kind of marginal area of northeast India called Assam. I basically grew up there for the first, um, you know, first few years of my life. Then I went to, for high school on, to a university called Aligarh Muslim University that was um, founded more than 125 years ago for the advancement of education of 
um, the minorities, particularly Western, modern, secular education. And it was um, basically fashioned after Cambridge and Oxford. So I was very fortunate to start my actually high school there. And I went on to do my undergraduate and my MA, my first MA from Aligarh Muslim University. But the Indian education system is very different from America. So my total number of years, actually, by the time I had finished my MA in college was actually 16 years. So it was you know, what would be equivalent to a BA in America. And then I came to the U.S. Uh, to do pursue, again, graduate studies at the University of Wisconsin in Madison. And I did my master's and my Ph.D. from there. So that's my educational background. As far as my own personal background, I am a third generation now academic. My grandfather was an academic. Both my parents were academics. So I had this, um, you know, I, I always knew I wanted to be an academic. So that, that, that was not never a confusion. What kind of academic I wanted to be, I think that was an interesting issue um, because back in India, an academic is really an armchair scholar, like a kind of almost like a medieval scholar. You just read books and you write books. Uh, whereas I was more keen to engage academic work with uh, the real world. And I don't know when it became such a conscious decision for me but I suppose somewhere in graduate school in the United States. So my personal life and my academic life came together um, in my work as I pursued it later, and particularly in this book that you're talking about. And um, again, my at a personal level, I live in Arizona right now. I had before this, I was in North Carolina, working in the University of North Carolina in Chapel Hill, and and prior to that, I was at um, Carleton College in uh, Minnesota when I was still a graduate student finishing up my work at Madison. Uh, what else can I tell you about myself uh, that would be of interest to your audience? Please yeah. ask. That's all very interesting. <laughs> no, and you know, a very interesting background and also you know, in a world where we, we think a lot about the subject of, of publicly engaged scholarship. Um, I think you're absolutely right. The book that we're going to be talking about today is just such a lovely example of, um, of, of academic work that, as you say, is involved with very real-world issues. I wonder if you could tell us a little bit about how you came to write this book. Oh, this book, again, is a, I think everything for me has been like a journey. You know, each book that I wrote was a journey into another aspect of human life that I am particularly interested in. This came about, there are multiple, actually, stories. This book has multiple beginnings. I grew up, as I said, in India and studied Indian history under a very, very uh, well-known scholar, probably one of the best historians um, living right now, one of them, Irfan Habib. He was an um, economic Marxist historian at Aligarh, and he had a major influence in me and had sort of um, asked me questions that at that time I did not process. So that conversation actually stayed with me and was probably one of the beginnings of uh, this book. At another level, it was my father. My the father passed away very suddenly in '97. When I even before I had my first job at Carlton, I was still a graduate student, and he had studied um, in pre-partition India in a place called the Dhaka University for his undergraduate. And he used to talk a lot about that place because you know India was partitioned after '47, and people never traveled back and forth between these different units of now what was had become India, Pakistan, and Bangladesh. So he used to talk a lot about that place and the wonderful academic life he had there. So I was, when he passed away, I was very curious to go and see um, 
Dhaka and sort of walk in the footsteps of where my father had been in that university. Um, alongside, I think what had happened in 99 when I got my first job, actually my real academic, my you know, tenure track position, which was also in Carlton too, the tenure track position, but I had finished my PhD in 99. So I considered that my first real job. I had this kind of sudden elevation to be a scholar of South Asia. It was, the position was historian, South Asian historian. But I had studied in India. I had never studied Pakistan, Bangladesh, or any of the other areas of South Asia. So I felt I had to learn something. And I thought, where could I go to learn something about South Asia outside of India? And it was easier to go to Bangladesh than Pakistan. Being a person of Indian origin, it is hard for, or at least those days, it was very difficult to get a visa to go to, uh, to Pakistan. So I ended up going to Dhaka. Alongside, there's a very small minor story, actually, but uh, was the opening for the interest in women, particularly, that came about in this book. When I was doing my research back in India for my own PhD work, I had engaged a woman to help me you know, keep uh, the house, actually, because in India you need to clean house every day. And she worked for me for a year and was extremely, you know, would never ask any question, never speak. And I think at the end of the year, she did, she was curious that I should sit on the desk and do some computer work all the time. So one day she asked me if I'm a novelist or if I'm some kind of a journalist or something. And I said, no, I'm just a professor. And um, so she said, would you like to listen to my story? And then she told me a story, which was a story of memory, a memory that her grandmother had passed on to her that somehow they had to leave their homeland, which later turns out to be Bangladesh, and, and I don't know where in Bangladesh, um, because of some uh, rioting and violence and somehow connected to this war of 1971. And I was like really taken aback that somebody who did not, had never grown up in that place, never had been there, remembered that as homeland and remembered violence as a reason for now having a completely new identity in India. And that triggered me to think, what happens to people, just ordinary people, when there is some kind, something extraordinary, historically extraordinary happening, and particularly what happens to women? So all these different things converged, actually, my, my interest in my father's you know, academic life, my interest in, as I said, having grown up in Aligarh, the interest in issues of the disempowered, having studied with Irfan Habib, then this my new position as a South Asian historian, and then this woman all came together, and I went to Dhaka in 99 for a very short visit in summer and decided to go visit the university where my father had studied. But somehow, instead of ending up in the university, I ended up in a place that I had no knowledge about. Um, it was very chaotic. It was very frightening to me the first time. But then on further inquiry, I found out that it was a camp. It was a camp for people who are living there as stateless because neither Pakistan nor Bangladesh are willing to give them citizenship. And they are a community that speak a language called Urdu, which is not the Bengali language of Bangladesh. And they are known as Biharis there. And these people, have, I was told later on, have been stuck there from 1971. So then again, that created a curiosity. Why are people stuck in a camp? And how come we don't know the history of these people stuck in camp from 1971? All that history that I studied for so many years suddenly felt like it was a lie, as if we were just told certain 
parts of that story about what post-colonial India is and you know, the colonial period without really telling what we are also doing to one another and what kind of histories we are creating in that area. So that triggered, all of this came together and I came back and I thought I would like to do you know, pursue this. And alongside all of this actually also happened the Iraq war. And that made me really think about um, what really happens to ordinary people when major powers collide against each other. And finally, that was the turning point, And I decided to do this work and pursue it, uh, despite all the obstacles. It's very, very interesting. Certainly when one reads the book, um, you get a sense of a very personal journey, um, as well as, of course, we'll talk about later, very personal, um, intimate interactions with, with some of the survivors of the war. Um, and you use the wonderful phrase in the book, partitioned memories. And I think that's what you just described, growing up in India, having studied history to the master's level, but never having learned a thing about, about the history you're talking about now. Um, but of course, Pakistan has its own way of telling that history and Bangladesh has its own way of telling that history. Um, I wonder for, for our listeners who may be a little bit less familiar with uh, First Partition and then the 1971 war, if you can just tell us, tell us enough to get us oriented into the geopolitics in that region. Oh, thank you. Yeah, it is, uh, it, again, it go, as a historians, we always pay attention to what history tells us. And Partition is one of the most devastating histories of the subcontinent. Um, what, where do you begin a partition narrative is, I think, a major question for um, scholars of that region. Some people would like to start the partition narrative from 1905, when the British colonials who ruled India for the first time divided up in the, uh, the region of Bengal, today that we know as partly Bangladesh and West Bengal in India, into two uh, different segments. Okay, But that was not very successful. There was a lot of... Uh, lot of um, questions about it, a lot of rioting, violence, and finally, nine, this was in 1905, and in 1911, the British had to reorganize them into one unit, but it was the first experiment at partitioning, I think, and, and they figured out, and they sort of tested it, is it possible? And so the next partition that officially came about in the creation of Pakistan and India was in 1947, and of course, it was a very a definite partition. It was not like the 1905 partition. India and Pakistan could not come back together. And I think people at some, at some point in time thought that they would go back and forth, that it would be something that won't be so divided and demarcated. But we know today that that history is, um, has been erased. India and Pakistan are completely different countries. Within Pakistan, there were two units that were made based on, again, partition was based on, the 47 partition was based on religious, on religious grounds. So Hindus and Muslims were separated. And the areas that had Muslim majority in Pakistan became Pakistan. One wing was in the western side of India, and the other wing was on the eastern side of India. And they were known as East and West Pakistan from 1947 to 1971. In 1971 or 1970, there was another kind of political upheaval that had been going on for a while um, based on discrimination, lack of equity in economic um, redistribution of wealth, uh, political representation, all kinds of issues that came to a head in 71 and led to the war that partitioned in Pakistan into two, creating Bangladesh as a brand new country. So there... And then since then, of course, there are many other subnational issues going on. Whether they will lead to partitionings, we don't know. But 
uh, and hopefully not, because um, partition, as I have realized from doing even this work, is something that does not end in the lives of people who experience it. Countries can be formed and reformed to some extent, but uh, people cannot bring them, themselves back together as a whole. And so part, the, 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 the trauma of partition is unresolvable, and hence I call it partition memory. It stays with you. It, it's something that gives destroys your identity yet gives you a different sense of self there is no more personhood except that memory of that division and in your book of course the 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 real main strand of your book uh comes from these interviews of survivors of the war uh and i wonder if we could talk a little bit about that because on the one hand they have very important stories to tell about 1971. But of course, you are very concerned with the ways those memories have continued to play a role in the life, in their lives, what memories are silenced, what memories they're now talking about for the very first time. Um, you speak about several groups of women, women um, who were the victims of massive rapes and sexual violence um, figure very prominently before you uh, then talk about some other categories of women, women who were in the helping professions, women who themselves were warriors. But maybe you can talk to us a little bit about um, some of the people you interviewed and, and what you learned from them. Uh, uh, I decided to also absolutely, um, you know, focus on those testimonies of women rather than actually write, you know, abstract from those testimonies another kind of book and write as if it is me telling that story or as an academic recalling a historical event, precisely because those testimonies are so powerful and I wanted to be my, them to be my co-authors. I didn't want to take people's stories and then just write an academic book as if it's a dispassionate exercise at um, uh, looking at a historical event. So I do want to say that, that I have foregrounded them because they are real people and they have gone through, um, uh, they have experienced history in themselves. The testimonies, what did I learn? I learned so much that it's impossible to... Um, you know, succinctly say in a few words. But one, if I have to really pull it down to one issue, one thing I learned is that while women are victimized in war, particularly for as rape, it is a mechanism, of course, but women are far more resilient and far more, far stronger than what the victimizers think. Their humanity shines through all of that. And it was the most important lesson I realized that no matter what violence you do against another human being, violence can never be total because the human, the human emerges, the human is far more powerful than the violence. Okay, that's um, the and coming from women who are particularly in the subcontinent are seen, of course, there are different classes of women. So women in the upper class don't face the same kind of discrimination and they're seen as equal actors in the national stories of the subcontinent of South Asia. But women from the lower classes are not seen as participants in the system. But from this book, I really realized that women, no matter what economic background they are from, they are the anchor, they are the foundation of a community surviving and moving ahead despite you know, all the fracturing that had gone on and, and will continue to go on in these societies. Um, the testimonies of each person is an individual testimony. It is an individual experience. But when you put them together, 
it gives you a narrative or a sense of the brutality of our times. And that is significant in my own understanding that while you tell a story of an individual, an individual becomes a gateway to understand something larger that does not diminish her personal experience. And it is very important to remember that it is the person, but the person is also... Um, as I said, interlocutor for something larger. And each one of them allowed me to see that. And I tried to select from the testimonies. I had over I had over 250 testimonies, of which around 50 of them were from women who had suffered rape. Um, and I tried to select these 10 testimonies that I use in the book uh, because they reflected on the issues that allowed me to then develop a narrative. And, and they are representative. They're not so unusual, but each experience is an unusual experience, but each story, as I said, connects to a collective, connects to a larger memory, and it allowed me to tell, weave them together, you know, to really make a text out of it. So um, if you want to ask me specifically, I'll be interested and willing to talk specific things, but, you know, it was both trying to tell a history from something that is not allowable in history in some ways, right? The junctures, this, this all great theory, but we do not want them in real life. We want real life to be continuous. And I think what I try to do in this book is that that continuity is not possible because it's a forced approach. What really is there is a person and a person with all those um, blemishes and the, and, the, and the ruptures really is the story, and hence the silence within it is what needs to be acknowledged, not what can be woven together and just made into a continuous story. Yeah, and I think we get, you know, from reading the book, this wonderful sense of of the real individuality and humanity of your individual interview subjects. We do get many pages, you know, continuous pages of first-person testimony, and it's very moving to read that material. And at the same time, a sense of how these people are speaking for a larger experience. You have um, a wonderful interview of a mother and daughter pair, um, Beauty, who herself is a child of rape and is is seeking to learn more about her past, and her mother, Nur Begum, um, who is the victim of terrible sexual violence. Maybe you'd like to talk about them a little bit. I think it's such an interesting story. Yeah, it was the most unusual one, too, because I did not have a mother and daughter pair interrogating history that way and interrogating their, each other, that what was that? What, what, how did this come about? Who am I? That question that the daughter asks, right? Um, it was... One of the first interviews also that I had, in fact, beauty is my gateway into this entire project. Because when I, and the re, another reason I had used the testimonies in its entirety is precisely to question that unspeakability that has been put in place both in all the street places of India, Pakistan, and Bangladesh when it comes to rape. When I first started the work in, in Bangladesh in 2001, I was making all my rounds to the archives and all the museums and libraries looking for material, and nobody would be able to show me anything. Yet everybody spoke about the horror of rape in that war. But somehow people did not seem to know someone or they wanted to hide it. I don't, I, in the initial period, I couldn't understand what was going on. Why is there so much talk, yet there is no evidence about it? So I decided then to go somewhere, but nobody would give me an entry point to go and meet some of these people. It was beauty. I just met her by chance. I had gone to a place uh, to 
actually work with some activists to find victims if I could and have you know my direct encounter uh, discussion with them. But it was in one, it was a cultural group. And then in beauty was their part was cultural group. And then at the end of one long session of just discussing this, she asked me privately if she could have this conversation with me, which I did. And then she said, you know, I have been trying to find out how my mother was raped in this war. Who, who, who took her? What happened? She keeps telling me that she's forgotten all of this. Will you be willing to come with me and discuss this with my mother? Because I need to find out who I am. Am I a daughter of a Bihari, a Bengali? Where was she? I need to know something that because otherwise I'm an outcast. Nobody sees me as a human being. That is what triggered. That is what brought us together. And it was an amazing interview, as I wrote in my book. In the in the before the interview itself, I had tried to give a front piece for each. Um, discussion, as you saw. When I invited them to the place I was staying in, the government guest house, the people there were really shocked that because they knew about this woman, but nobody was willing to tell me about it, right? So when they saw me invite her and that I was actually asking her to sit on the sofa and have this, they just couldn't accept it. They wanted me to just forget about it, leave the place, whatever. But they had to show some respect because I was a visitor. So that's how the interview started. And when I started first asking the mother that this is what beauty tells me, and uh, can you tell me about your experience, of course, she kept you know, kept saying that, no, I had forgotten everything. I'd lost my memory. I was in a mental asylum. But then she told me some details as we moved along. And that is when beauty took over the interview. I didn't even do that interview. Beauty took over and asked the mother the questions. It was an interrogation into finding her own sense of her selfhood, as I said. It was a very, very powerful moment to see that this process of doing oral history was actually empowering a person who was completely de-enfranchised by her community uh, to claim that I have a right to know my history and from now on I will not hide behind your, your inability to remember because I have been now in a way validated to ask this question. So this was, it is not what the story just tells. I think it was the process of trying to get there that itself was so important. And for, for me as a, as a person, as a, as a scholar, I think this was a moment I felt I was giving back something to a person who was willing to share the story that was the only thing she had to share with me. Because I have come and written a book. I'm a professor. Whatever my life goes on, I do better in my career. But there was not much I could give back. And this was one moment I did give back to an individual. You know, a lot of the women you interview, um, we get a sense that, uh, you know, that they've been carrying around this burden. Of course, Beauty herself is younger. But you interview another woman who, who we know in your book as Taslima's mother, um, and and she speaks about how she's never before spoken about this. And I wonder if you can you know, tell us a little bit about the experience of that generation of women, both during the war, um, but then the silencing afterwards and, and how they have lived with this for the, the intervening 30 years. Yes, most people will say that my life has been a living dead since that moment. Uh, the, as I said, the unspeakability is social. It is cultural, it is religious, political from every level. And it doesn't matter what kind of background a woman came from, upper class, middle class, lower class, a kind of institutionalized silence was put in place. And again, that is, uh, means when one thinks about it, why should, a question should also arise, why should they speak? What do they get from speaking this, right? And one woman actually told me that. She said, 
why should I bother to tell you my story? What, as if my husband is going to love me anymore if I tell you, or will my son respect me if I'm going to tell you all this stuff? So just go back home. We have lived with this crisis. It's a trauma. We continue to live within ourselves with this problem, and that's it. So that is kind of the personal, political, uh, sociological kind of approach to it. But of course, when one gets an opportunity to speak about it in the kind of, um, you know, almost it's like a secret story. Let's, you know, it's a secret story of women's nationalism and women's forgotten uh, contribution. It was a moment, it was, like a, it was a catharsis, as everybody said, that I mean, I've never spoken, yet when speaking to you, of course, it, it sort of stirs up memories that we wanted to avoid. It's very painful. But having spoken, I realized that my story has some worth. And this has been across the board. But again, not, not as in my book, as you saw, not a single woman used the word rape in, in discussing this encounter, as they would say. They would use words like, I was unconscious. One, I still remember a conversation, not a conversation, a long discussion and spending a lot of time with one family of women that I didn't put into this book. These were four women I had met in their home, and I was told that they were all raped. This was a grandmother, her daughter-in-law, who is herself now a grandmother, and her daughter-in-law and her daughter. And this is the entire extended family that lived together. And I was told by a local social worker who is now a young man that time. At that time, he was 11 years old, and he had witnessed this rape uh, of these four women in their own home. But when I went to meet her, of course, we didn't meet them. We didn't talk about rape. We talked about everything else. And they told me that, you know, the army had come with the local people and then they ransacked their home and they set it all on fire and killed all their animals. And, and then when they, they slaughtered all the goats and, and their um, goats and ducks and hens and whatever and um, made a feast and then went back. And they said the men were not around. So before they came back, we scrubbed everything, cleaned up everything, got rid of all the blood as we could. And then she turned around, this grandmother turned around, and she said, you know, I've scrubbed, me and my daughter-in-law, we scrubbed so much, and yet can you see that there's still blood there? And I can see, still see the blood on those walls and those places. You know, it was a kind of telling me it is so inside us that there is no way that we can get rid of it. So each one of them spoke about unspeakability, the silence that is essential, yet within that silence telling you stories that can be, that are so rich and so troubling um, that these stories have their um, impact in multiple ways, ultimately, when you tell about the... I hope so, that in the book, as I said... It's women's stories that cannot be told, yet in not telling, we hear everything that needs to be accounted for today. You know, one of the things you talk about that made the experience so traumatic is that um, is a kind of confusion of the cast of characters. It wasn't a simple case of, uh, of what would eventually be known as Bengali women, East Pakistan women, being raped by West Pakistani men, but the fact that, uh, that you know, sometimes... Women, uh, men of their own, you know, their own neighbors would bring bring the rapists there. Um, that there's a kind of a a blurring of the lines of of perpetrator and victim um, that that doesn't fit with the simple national categories in which history is remembered. Um, that that for for these women's memories and these women's silences, that has to do partly with the fact that national categories don't don't do for them. Um, what they seem to do for the histories at the national level. Uh, and 
I wonder if you can tell us a little bit more about that. Um, exactly who who are the the players in a sense in national terms, but what is really happening at the community level? Because as you say, these are very individual stories. They have to do with neighbors. They have to do with family dynamics. Um, they're very intimate in a way. It's not you know West Pakistan way over here and East Pakistan way over there. It's it's much more um, much more fine than that in a way. Yes, and that was a reason as uh, you know in the last twenty minutes of our conversation, I have not used national categories yes uh, yeah. um because women do remind and uh, not just remind i think taught me that lesson. you had asked the question what I had learned. I think one of the most important lessons I had learned is that national stories histories have are so froth with problems, and women remind me clearly about it in that kind of intimate violence. This violence, yes, there were organized groups. I would not undermine that at all, that reality of that organized... I have, I have personally not come across a memo. I have done enormous amount of research in Pakistan, too, on this issue. I have not seen any official document saying that rape could be... Um, um, a mechanism of war, or that they were real, um, you know, kind of circulars, even though they were destroyed. But I did talk to some groups of people, some perpetrators, who said that, yes, we had witnessed rape but done by our officers, and nobody told us that this is not permissible. So this became kind of an unspoken way of doing it. So nationalities and national sentiments were brought into this. Um, business of terrorizing one another. The Pakistan army was the organized army, but likewise, there was an org- there were organized militias from the Bengali community called the Mukti Bahini that was helped by India. The Bihari community that I spoke, speaking about earlier, they jo- most of them joined, if they joined, they joined up with the Pakistanis, Pakistan army, because they saw themselves as Pakistanis. They had emigrated from India in 1947 during the partition in the hope that they were moving to Pakistan. They came to the eastern wing, many of them, rather than go to western wing. In 71, they were fighting to save that nation that they had themselves sacrificed to belong to. So you have multiple groups of people here, but the multiple groups of people are also real people with, as I said, sense of themselves as part of communities and part of societies. Now, the Pakistanis are transplants, more or less. They had come from the Western Wing. So they had no real community in that area of East Pakistan except the barracks and their civil servants and whatever. The East Pakistani Bengalis, whether they're Biharis or the Bengalis, did have community. So they, although they joined militias and different groups, they also had their own community. And based on their political relationship with uh, Western Pakistan, they sort of carved out their spaces. But as women reminded that in they didn't quite see, most of these women did not quite see that this was some kind of a national battle happening and that some group, specific group of people were fighting out national sentiments in raping them. They really saw that men were taking advantage of of, of mayhem, of chaos, and everything was permissible. And what, And in that permissibility, the vulnerables were attacked. And this was what, so they did not see that this was some kind of only West Pakistani violence against Bengali women or um, only Bengali violence against Bihari women. They saw it as men raping women, men raping us. And we, do, and we are not going to continue this divided story of one group being good and the other group being bad. We are going to tell that story as it happened, which is, how could, as women repeatedly reminded me, how could the West Pakistani soldiers know that I live in this place or that place, and particularly in these absolutely remote villages? 
It is because my neighbor enabled it. So that 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 loss of trust of people that they consider to be family, because neighbor in South Asia, I, I is it may is is your family. A neighbor is more important than your brother or sister because your neighbor is the one who takes care of you when you have any kind of problem. And here suddenly the neighbor had turned into an enemy, and and they could give a face to it. Right? It was not this impersonal uh, military just coming in. It was actually a face they could recognize. One woman actually showed me as we were driving once in a village. She showed me the guy who had raped her and her aunt. He lives there, right next to the, them right now. She has to hide her face. He walks around you know, as being a hero of the war. So these people are extremely aware that you can't keep on telling the story as a national struggle. It is a struggle in which powerful men exploited vulnerable women. And let's tell that. So don't keep dividing us. They do make a division based on gender. I do have to say that. But... Within that sense of women, it has become much more blurred that it is not just Bengali, uh, Bihari, Muslim, Hindu, Christian, tribal groups. Women had suffered and men are the are perpetrators. So let's talk about that. Yes. And then, um, you know, as you, as you move through the book, you, you get to this moment where you think you're just about done your research and then you decide to go to Pakistan and talk to some of the men and seek out perpetrators and hear their stories as well. And it's a fascinating part of the book. I wonder if you'd like to tell us about that. Yeah, that was, again, as I said, initially when we started talking, we said, you know, what triggered this book? And I told you all this other kind of little anecdotes that brought me to this. And I had paid particular attention to the women's story because I, of the woman that I had met in India and the other women I met in a Bihari camp that asked me to write and get in I thought I was really going to do a book only on women and war, given that the Iraq war had also you know, become what it did after Abu Ghraib and all of that. I was really keen to just write about what happens to women, women not also just as victim, but women who become part of these kind of struggles to, of, of upholding some kind of uh, 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 you know, abstract nationalism and see themselves as, as enablers of that and consider that to be heroic. I thought I was going to really both critique how women see themselves in that role and how, what happens to women in those places and those times. But it was this sudden interview or conversation with this man that triggered that other part, which I honestly did not bring out as clearly in this book because I thought I was going to write a second book based on just men's memory, and I just use it as a postscript in this book. I don't know if I'll get to that point because writing this book itself has been very psychologically and emotionally draining for me. So sometimes, you know, I just want to recreate my own normal life because this is so abnormal. Um, but having had that having that conversation with that man in Bangladesh that said, you know, we had become criminals. We thought nationalism was an enabling thing, but what we had done was we were targeting just ordinary vulnerable people who were our neighbors and friends, and we were saying that we are going to act out power on your body, and this is what makes me a hero. It was that conversation, that ability to reflect and tell me that you know, there is a serious problem the way we understand nationalism and the way we act out nationalism. That triggered and said, 
I need to find out men's story. Yes, I had been looking at them as with under the label called perpetrator, but they're also human beings. What happens to a human person after all of this is said and done? That took me to Pakistan. And I was extremely fortunate to actually have the Harry Frank Guggenheim organization support that research. Because by this time, we are talking of 2004, 2005, the uh, post-2009-11, uh, there was no government funding from the U.S. to go to Pakistan to do work and research there. So I needed private foundations to support it. And as I said, Harry Frank came through and gave me a fellowship for two years. And I'm extremely grateful mm. for that. And so I went to Pakistan based on that fellowship, which left me completely on my own. I didn't have any institutional support. I did not know. Because I was nobody was bothered about me, which was good and bad. I didn't have an entry point. I'd never been to Pakistan before. I do not know anyone. So I decided that the easiest way to do it, once again, was to go to archive. And, and again, like in Bangladesh, total silence, complete you know, erasure and deletion of that history. And like being a historian, being a scholar, I decided to start in the university. And the university, I met a professor, Iqbal Chawla, who was extremely helpful in introducing me to his graduate students and asking, you might want to talk to them. They may know people. But then it turned out that there was a security officer, a security guard, actually, not an officer, in the university who was part of this uh, 1971 war. And I write about him in my book a little. He was my first person who gave me my first interview. And he told me about the struggle with his conscience. And he took me to meet his mother. And his mother told me about the letters he used to write that she couldn't read herself being illiterate. She used to take it to a local mass schoolmaster. And they used to have this public hearing of this, these letters in which he used to record of his troubled conscience that there was so much violence happening, which is not war violence. This is pure um, violence of, you know, brutal violence in the sense that there was no more rules of war being played out here. It was his letters that he let me see that he had written to his mother and his conversation with me of the struggle with his conscience. He, tell, he took me like beauty. He was my person, my gateway into a whole range of lower level subaltern soldiers who were involved in this um, business without anyone telling them to do so. Yet it became like a virus. It spread, as he said. That opened up again. Then I started working with, I went to the veterans officers thing and asked if you had, you know, the register of veterans of the war who are on payroll, on retirement benefits. That brigadier, somehow or the other, took... Um, he was, he was kind enough to give me names of some of the main officers. And so one thing led to another. And also, as I said, my having grown up in India, in uh, attending Aligarh Muslim University was a major help for me in Pakistan. Aligarh is considered to be by many to be the intellectual space from where Pakistan was conceived and was really um, intellectually uh, made available to the Muslim community, right? So coming out of Pakistan, uh, Aligarh is a kind of, I have to explain that university is like family. So you have chapters all over the world. The mm. Aligarh chapter in Islamabad became my also entry point. Once I established myself that I'm an alum of that university, people trusted me that, you know, 
it is it's a very it's 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 a very different space aligarh so the tr- the trust is inbuilt that once you're from that university you have a particular way of looking at the world and it's a common shared experience because you're taught by very similar kinds of professors and and there's an intellectual vision in that university so i was when i said i was from i had studied there i was no longer just considered to be some kind of an american academic from india originally coming and trying to dig up some very dirty old history that the nation wanted to forget but a person who had been trained to inquire because it is essential in a way for muslims to keep asking difficult questions only to go forward and advance a community so in my 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 position from there enabled me to enter into this work and of course not all perpetrate i made i did over 100 interviews in pakistan and i have to say that most people that i spoke with most of the, all of them most of them were soldiers and you know in the army uh, of different ranks of course and there were some civil servants i think very very small percentage of people and i think maybe five or five i would say maybe of the 123 people that i did serious um, interviews with i would say five or six people only said i don't know much and i don't want to talk about it and nothing horrible happened there this is all you know hype uh, the rest of them said there was awful things that happened this should not have happened we had lost our humanity and one needs to recognize that and one needs to sort of move forward having recognized that we can do horrible things to one another but okay most of them also said i didn't do it okay mm-hmm. somebody else did it it's always a, like a third person narrative and i know him it is not a narrative of a stranger right it was not somebody i don't know yes i know that person but you know that i'll tell you that story so at some point in time i realized that they were telling the story as if somebody else did it but it was their story um mm-hmm. that they were telling by giving another fictitious name or another fictitious identity to this you know person that they made up so it it is very heartening to see that perpetrators were able to recognize that there was something wrong or i that went on during the war and one needs to be able to revisit it because without revisiting it you cannot move forward and the wonderful wonderful thing that came out of this was their concern for the victims i was i did not expect that you know there were a lot of people who would start their narrative by talking about the valor and how great they were and how disciplined they were as a as an army this that other but it would come down to this point of a sense of remorse a sense of recognition of that the conscience troubled them but along but beyond that they said we you know it's the victims that deserve justice it it was remarkable and i continue to hold on to that um that sentiment to say it is still possible to talk about these difficult things and perhaps by talking about it enable our reconvening ourselves as a human community in the subcontinent you know you talk a little bit about you know, the notions of justice and humanity um and uh and you you write a little bit about how about frameworks of islamic values that that help to recognize humanity across supposed national lines across lines of gender and how you see some promise in those frameworks um tell tell us a little bit about about those frameworks that you found useful for thinking about how people do indeed recognize both their own and each other's humanity yes in this book as you said i just touched on that issue because i was still grappling with how to uh, tell this story and what are the frameworks one can use beyond the testimony beyond that history itself so it's a it's a kind of a just 
in the book, I think I just touch on that issue. I did not really excavate and investigate it further. In the more recent works, now I've been doing it actually, purely working on this concept of what, how through Islamic ideas one can re-question um, horror and what kind of justice could be available and who acts out these just this, these uh, uh, who who can provide the justice. It is very the more work I have now been doing on this issue, I'm recognizing that there is a very interesting discourse on the question of peace, okay? And peace and justice are interrelated in this Islamic concept. The concept of peace is a concept called suleh. Suleh means peace, and it's connected with another word called islah, which means improvement and development. And the concept of justice in Islam is a concept of balance, maintaining balance. It should be proportionate. So both punishment and verdict have to be proportionate. You cannot go outside of that framework of, of, of maintaining that balance. So rape, the, the, the um, uh, justice for rape is not retaliatory rape that you find in, even today in many Muslim countries, even in Pakistan, if you know the story of Muhtar and Mai, who was raped by her community because she was, her brother was alleged to have an affair with a woman from the other community. So as justice, the woman from another community who is Muhtaran was raped. That is like a tribal, tribal justice system that's pre-Islamic. In the Islamic system, it is not supposed to be retaliatory, but restoration of, of peace, right? So restorative justice is what is um, recommended and suggested. To be able to get to that point, of course, there is a very important issue of admission. People have to account for what they do. How do you get to the point of accountability? Like even my perpetrators, when I spoke to them, they, they, ha they repeatedly said that, that there is no place to talk about these issues. But, you know, now that you ask, we are telling you this. So the question of how not is not, it is not just simply that national histories are selective in their memory. National histories, I have to say, also can criminalize itself because it doesn't take into account what has happened. It doesn't create a space for accountability. So the accountability issue for my perpetrators was all in the level of their, either the conscience, the mother is a very important figure in triggering that conscience and connected to that is religion. So they keep going back and saying that we have done repentance to God, Toba. But in the Islamic system, Toba is not sufficient when you transgress another human being. When you you, even God cannot forgive you for transgressing another human being in the Islamic, the traditional system. So you have to go and ask forgiveness from the victim. That, again, is very curious and interesting in Islam because unlike the Judaic system that I have been also studying, that only a victim can pardon a victimizer. In the Islamic system, there's still an opening for a victimizer to be forgiven through the process of what they call wali al-dam, a person who has authority to forgive, which could be the father, the brother, the mother, whoever else, if the victim has passed away. So it requires a conversation with both parties. The question in the case of India, Pakistan, and Bangladesh, Pakistan and Bangladesh are Muslim-majority Muslim countries. Pakistan declares itself to be an Islamic republic. Do they really function with these normative grounds that Islam provides? I, that I haven't seen. That they return to the international frameworks in which the nation can overlook all of this, right? So how do you create accountability? How do you enable men and women or families 
of the women and the men who perpetrated violence against them to really meet and talk about these issues. So in a way, I am suggesting almost an ideal normative position that perhaps actually would be much more difficult to enable. But if you look at the Islamic system, it is possible. And if Pakistan that claims to be an Islamic republic and Bangladesh that says that we have a Muslim majority, we are a Muslim majority country with Islam as our official religion, need to then revisit this question because the nations have to create spaces. These states have to enable this acknowledgement and the state must take responsibility for what they did themselves because, as I said, the Pakistan army is a state institution. They did things. Unless the state acknowledges, those individuals cannot really exercise uh, that capacity to seek forgiveness, to admit their guilt, and also forgive. But, of course, in the Islamic system, forgiveness just doesn't come from saying, I'm sorry and forgive me. The victim, the victim or the victim's family can withhold forgiveness. Okay, so, but because it is their right, the right of the victim is to forgive and not to forgive. The, the victimizer also has some rights, the rights to reconvene his or her humanity by seeking forgiveness, right? So there, is, there are rights, but the rights have to be exercised and the, the victim has a final right in this case. If, if all of this was to work, as I have suggested very, you know, um, uh, very, very, in a very preliminary way in the book, but in new essays I'm writing more. If this has to be exercised, we get to this wonderful point that is really a very important element in, in Islam is the rights of the human being, which is called hukuk al-ibad. If, the, one of the, if you look at the five pillars of Islam, Three of those five pillars are connected with the secular question and with the human question, the, 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 Ramad, the Ramadan, which is fasting and recognizing the poverty and the hunger of the other, zakat, which is charity, learning to live with others and sharing your wealth with others in the way that there is redistribution, and hajj, which is the coming together of people to, um, to visit a place together in, where they can understand themselves, the diversities and the unity. So those are actually... A responsibility that human beings have to one another. If those things are actually practically used, can be actualized even in a small way, then you get to that concept, what I'm talking about, the rights of man, because the rights of God are different from rights of man. And in Islam, as you today see, I, unfortunately, Muslim countries are, you know, and are very fixated on, on the ritual practice of it, but not on the practical... Um, the human aspect that is so important that the religion guides you to carry out. Yasmin, this is absolutely fascinating work and, and a fascinating discussion. Uh, we've taken up a lot of your time, but I do want to just um, ask, uh, a little, maybe you've already answered this question in part, um, uh, a little bit about what you're working on now. Oh, now I've, I've told you, I promise I'll never yeah. do any of this kind of work ever again. It is so <laughs> traumatic. I am, uh, yeah. I am now doing something quite actually just simply historical to some extent. I'm trying to write a book on the decolonization of the Muslims in the early 20th century. It is between decolonization and uncolonized subjects in some way, in this ambiguous position of of talking back to the British colonial administration and saying, you know, you can rule us, but you don't govern us. And, mm -hmm. and that point, and these are absolutely subaltern actors, my people on the ground. And this is an area that the area I'm covering is what I would call traditional Hindustan, which is from um, the Ganges, uh, west of the Ganges to east of the, uh, 
uh, east of the Indus, more or less, that area, which will be from Islamabad, Pakistan today, all the way to Bihar in India. And it is in that area that you have a lot of these subaltern actors um, questioning, raising, you know, really important little group. They're, the, they're local people, and these local groups are, and they have one charismatic leader here and there, but they really raise this question of being the decolonized or uncolonized subject. And I'm trying to understand where that is coming from and what kind of networks build up and, and what are the what is the passion behind it and um, how do they use religion in some way because I know that the colonial administration is fixated on the question of religion and dividing up people based on religion. How do they overcome all of that and, and what kind of narrative can emerge? And these people, as I said, some of them are Sufi saints, some of them are just local mullahs, some of them are just um, a local school teacher or something. And this is early 20th century. I'm hoping to do it between um, 1909 to 1940 before the rise of the Pakistan movement. I'm not looking at big political parties. Is a small. And the other big mm. project that I'm doing, which will take me much longer, is actually a children's history of India, Pakistan, and Palestine. And I'm hoping to write with children a history that they have inherited from our and our parent generation, which they question. And I already started work in Palestine and in India, and I'm hoping to start work in uh, Pakistan soon. Fascinating. There's two fascinating projects. I'm sure we look forward to uh, to reading them. Thanks so much for being on our show, Yasmin. It's been wonderful to talk to you. Uh, take care, and and we'll uh, I, I will we'll look forward to reading your work, uh, Women, War, and the Making of Bangladesh: Remembering 1971. Thanks so much. Thank you, Lisa. It was wonderful talking to you. Bye-bye. Bye bye. Bye. Today's guest has been Yasmin Sekia, author of Women, War, and the Making of Bangladesh, Remembering 1971, just out in 2011 from Duke University Press. I'm Lisa Heineman of New Books in Gender and Sexuality Studies. Thanks for listening, and please tune in again.